Perimeter Church podcast. If it feels to you like social change is happening faster, you may be right. Two years after having same-sex marriage recognized at the federal level, the U.S. Supreme Court has said they're legal everywhere, three times faster than abortion legalization. Lead teacher Randy Pope starts the new series, The Stand, with this message entitled, Two Cities, One God, based on Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a new series. The new series is uh, entitled, The Stand. I've already made it known uh, through a couple of videos that have been sent out to various uh, youth leadership and parents and so forth, but uh, even to the whole congregation, this a critical series. Every time I begin a new series, uh, my heart gets wrapped into it and I see its great importance and, uh, and perhaps I'm, uh, I tend to overstate a bit because everyone can't be my favorite series. But I can say this could be one of the most important series, and I think you're going to see why, particularly for our young people. And I've told them, I'm addressing this series in every moment of preparation with my first, not only, but my first audience being our young people. I want you, our young people, more than anybody else to hear this message. As I've been preparing, I've been thinking, Lord, this is the stuff that I want my grandchildren now to hear. This is the things that I wanted my kids to know when they were young. And I'm watching what's happening in a broken society and in these schools of today. And let me tell you, there is more heartbreak in these schools than you will ever, ever, ever imagine. And I will assure you the reason is right here in this book of Daniel. We're going to see exactly why there's a heartbreak And we're going to see the remedy to that heartbreak. And so I say hang into this series. If you're not here, get the podcast. Stay with the series. Pray for the series. And ask God to change our lives. And I'm going to ask him now on behalf of all of us that God would do just that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven... I would pray that you would, in an unusual way, visit this place through this series. I pray that there would be salvation of life, not just eternally as much as that would be our highest priority, but you would spare human life, even as kids find themselves without any hope, desperate, to be loved, desperate to win in a world where they feel they will never have a chance. I pray, Father, that you're going to work the good news of your gospel into our hearts in a way that we will see far more what you've done for us than we'll ever think about what we can do to either give to you or to change ourselves. Father, we believe it is your work that changes hearts. And we're going to pray that you would use this book of Daniel in a very, very special way to change our lives. So we commit ourselves to you now to that end. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Legendary football coach Paul Bear Bryant made famous the well-known adage, winning isn't everything, but it beats anything that what? Anybody finish it? Not such a well-known adage, huh? Are you telling me that you're not all Alabama football fans and know everything that Bear Bryant said? This is what he said. Winning isn't everything, but it beats anything that comes in second, right? And it does. Winning is important to all of us. Sure, it's important to us. I mean, just look what happens when the belief that winning is now lost. You look at the fans at an athletic event, and the fans, they leave early. They don't even want to see the end of the game. I don't care if it's my team. They're not going to win. Who cares now? We have lost. What happens to you as students when you're in a course and you know that the very best grade on your final cannot pull you up over the passing grade, and you're going to fail the course anyway? You're not going to study for that exam. You're going to say, who cares? I've already failed. There is no way to win. When we find in our relationship of marriage that I have no hope that this marriage is going to get any better. I have no hope that we'll ever have a good marriage. What do people do? They file for divorce. They say, there's no hope. If I believed, maybe so, but I have no hope. Treatment for cancer. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We just stop and we say, if there is no hope, then I'm really not interested to keep fighting. The reality is, is that the hope of winning does something very unusual to keep us acting responsibly, right? Very, very true. I love to win. I think if you were to uh, uh, ask my children, is your dad competitive? Does he like to win? I think they'd all say yes. I was the father, unlike most, who as you're playing with your little four or five-year-old, you're playing a game and you want to help them win. I never did that. I tried to beat them as much as I possibly could. (laughs) I knew the day was coming they'd beat me. I'm going to beat them now. (laughs) So uh, I love to win. And, And you know what? I'm actually glad that I do. I don't think there's anything wrong with You and me having a passion to win. You know what I regret and deeply regret? I regret the choice of venues that I have made to make winning important. Not that I don't like to win, but I like to win in the wrong venues. I love winning in the venue of reputation. Love to win in the venue of athletics. Love to win in the venue, the venue venue that don't really count. They don't mean anything. But there's one area in which winning is everything. The stakes are so high that if we lose in this one, we lose it all. And it has to do with the eternal. And you know that. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that. There's more than this life that we're living right now. We know it. There's an eternity to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and you can't, you can't even see the end of it. It goes forever and ever and ever. We can live forever. We can be faithful to our God. We can actually win. You know, when I was young, and I thank God for his grace that brought this about, 
out of every reason it should not have been you can't imagine why it would ever be for me look at my family look at my brother look at my my story where I came up anything why would it be but God did something in my heart when I was a young student and I decided that winning in the spiritual realm was of most importance even in the time that I lived these years passed very real that it was still perceived as it is now to an exponential amount that if you're a Christian you're a loser why would anybody want to make known that they're a Christian because we know that these Christians they're just they're not popular they're not they're not but something happened and God gave me this sense that you know the only way that I could win is to choose the venue of the spiritual realm and say that is the most important arena to win in. That's what we need today. We need God to do a work among our young people as never before because you know what's happening in this world today. And we've got to have a new generation that comes up and says, look, we're redefining winning And winning has to do with that which is eternal more than anything else, and everything else will take care of itself. Winning is all important. The stakes higher than we could ever imagine. For Daniel, in the book of Daniel, Old Testament, have your Bibles turned, chapter 1. In the book of Daniel, Daniel wisely chose what I'm going to call delayed gratification. Young people, I want you to hear this. You know how important this is. I, I, I say this uh, when I'm dealing with young people and have an opportunity to be with them. I say, you know, if there's one thing I want you to, to examine is your willingness for delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. It's where you say, you know what, I'm going to give up something now that I really would enjoy and like, and I'm going to give it up for the sake of something that I will want a whole lot more at some point down the road. My grandfather handed me a, about a $5 bill, $10, I don't remember, but I can actually remember the handing of the bill to me when I was a little kid. He said, son, I'm going to ask you to do something that no other kid's going to do. Well, now I'm competitive, so I'm thinking, all right, let's see what I can do. I want you to save this money. I want you to spend it like every other kid. I want you to save this money. And I want you to buy something that no other kid will ever be able to get because they wouldn't be willing to do what you're doing. And I said, I'm going to do that. What do you want for birthday? Money. What do you want for Christmas? Money. What do you want for dessert? Money. (laughs) Literally, we got dessert one day a week. It was on Sunday. We went out to eat only on Sunday afternoon. Only time we went out and that day we got dessert, it was the biggest moment. And the, what do you want? And I said, Can I have the money that it would cost to get the dessert? And that's what I'd get every week. I'd put it in my little savings there. I'd go to, after a football practice or whatever, everybody waiting and getting their Coke and something to eat. And, you don't get anything? No, I'm not getting anything. Why not? I'm saving up for a car. You're just 11. (laughs) I don't care. And let me tell you, I wish you could see how many people, when I rolled off the lot, a brand new Pontiac Firebird, it was the muscle car of our 
of our whole, I mean, literally, of our school. The mag wheels, the four in the floor. The, I mean, it was, the, it was the biggest engine. It had it all. Paid cash for it. Because I just saved and saved and saved. And my buddies, they said, would never believe it. And you know what's so interesting? I don't even care about cars. <laughs> but that's what registered in my mind back then. I said, all right, let's get a car. I read a study, many of you have read it, I know. A study that came out of Stanford, it was done in the late 60s and 70s, but the results have come in over the last years. And so they tracked these children. They tracked them now for years, and they put marshmallows in front of them and other things as well, but they'd say, here you go. You can either do this. You can have a marshmallow right now or nothing right now, and in 15 minutes you can have two marshmallows. Nothing now, 15 minutes, two marshmallows, or you can right now have one marshmallow, leaving the room, be back in 15 minutes, and then they noted everyone who ate their one marshmallow. The others got two marshmallows when they came back. Then they tracked all these kids now into adulthood. They watched their SAT scores. They watched their career and what they were getting as careers. They watched their BMI, body mass index. They watched all these things and saw this incredible correlation between whether these kids were ready to willing for delayed gratification or not. That was the real issue. You want to see a man of delayed gratification? It's the man Daniel. And I'll say to you young people, if you think delayed gratification means, all right, if I live life now for the Lord, if I follow him and live a miserable life, then I get the wonder and beauty of eternity in heaven forever. You get that. But folks, you've missed it, young folks. Let me tell you, there are things called the fruit of the Spirit that include joy, love, peace, patience, things that are so important to you and me to make life worth the living in terms of pleasure and enjoyment that you will never, ever, ever know, certainly to the extent if you don't experience delayed gratification. It comes in this life. That's why our Savior said, it's so clear. I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly, not just in eternity, but right now. I can remember as a young person, me thinking, oh, okay, I'm gonna become a Christian. And this was my thinking. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow this Christianity, I didn't understand it. Then it wasn't even a love relationship. And I'm going to follow this Christianity because I would rather be miserable for 80 or whatever years than to live in eternity in hell forever. No. I'll, I'll delay my gratification only to be pleasantly surprised to see what comes with the joy of the Spirit and the love of God and relationship and acceptance and the things that you get from God. Incredible. Well, the book of Daniel, let me give you a little historical background, and then we have a very quick teaching out of the first two verses, just an introduction. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. Judah, the southern kingdom, is now being threatened by Babylon. Babylon was a country. It was a, it was a people that were ruthless. They had a king, Nebuchadnezzar. There is an invasion to Judah, and Judah has its first invasion in 605 B.C., all right, 600 years before Christ came. 
About eight years later, there was a second invasion, and then during this invasion, Jehoiakim, who is the king of the southern kingdom, he is captured along with the nobles, the royal family, and some of the very, very, very best of the land, and they're taken into captivity. Daniel was a young teenager, many think as young as 13 years of age when this is written of him. But he is apparently a special young man, and he and some of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, many of you have heard those three names, those are his friends. They're taken into captivity during this second invasion. A third invasion takes place about 11 years later, and during that invasion, Literally, the whole region of the the southern part of Israel, Judah, was taken captive under Babylon. It was a big to-do because Nebuchadnezzar overcomes the king of Israel, God's people. He literally robs the treasury of the temple. And it was during that second invasion. I mean, you're talking about defeat. When you rob the temple, they come in and destroy it all. I mean, just destroy Jerusalem in the third invasion. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I am the greatest of all. Not even the God of Israel can stop me. That's the historical background. This Daniel, young Daniel, is taken and kind of primed to be someone special for them. And, and he refuses to do what the leadership of the country says that he must do, as well as his three buddies. And they say, no, we're going to stand up for the Lord. We believe in him. We're going to, regardless of the cost, we're going to take our stand. And we call this series The Stand. It's the stand that we want every one of us as followers to take. And you young people, how critically important it is that you take that stand even now. People of Israel... They had seen the favor of God lifted and it seemed as if God was not really taking care of them anymore because Babylon was winning the battle against the people of God. He'd won the battle. And this Nebuchadnezzar is so prideful, he is convinced that everything happened because of him. So Babylon now is the most secularistic, humanistic society ever known. And in the midst of all of this, this country, known for everything that they're doing, thought that they had everything under their own control. The book of Daniel is to teach us not, here's a great illustration, look what Daniel did, you do it too. That's wonderful, that's a great application. But the whole book is about the power and sovereignty of God over all things in life. And we're going to see how that plays into the whole story of the man Daniel. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me. You kind of get a feel for what is happening in the the spirit of this humanistic and and, uh, secularistic society when you come to chapter 3, which is not our text of the day, but chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, and this is where the three friends of Daniel are about to be, you know, thrown into what we'll find out, the the furnace and all. We'll get to that later. But uh, they're being threatened with their life. And this is what we read in verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. And that is, 
Are you going to turn and you're going to obey us or not? He says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, and that's going to be critical, we'll come to this later, but even if he does not, doesn't mean he will, because I'm faithful to God. Oh, let me tell you, nothing bad's going to happen to me. They knew they could die in the furnace. It was happening to other people. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And they were saying, you must do this or you die. And this is a reflection of Daniel and these three friends. Their heart was to say, so be it. I don't know what the consequences are. For you young people today, you're not going to be thrown into a fire. You're not going to be put to death. But you might find yourself wishing you could die. And many are taking their lives for that reason. Because there's being told, if you don't, if you can't, If you're not, then you're dead in your relationship to us who count. And you're a nobody. You're a loser. You'll never make it. And that's the feeling of many of our young people today. Never realizing that there are two ladders. We see the one ladder, and that's the ladder that leans up to the the wall of human success. But there is another ladder, and it has to do with God's favor. And everybody's wondering, how high can I get on this ladder of success and popularity and acceptance and all the things that I'm looking for in life? Not realizing that, oh, you got the wrong ladder. There's one up here. It doesn't matter where you are over here as long as you're up here on the other ladder. That's what really counts. Babylon is going to be known now as a title that will be used in Scripture to represent the humanistic, secularistic ways of mankind. So we're becoming more and more like Babylon. I had an opportunity to go into Iraq and went in when there was the, the, uh, um, the Saddam uh, airport was literally vacated. It was a couple of weeks after Saddam had been captured and uh, we came into this airport and did this incredible dive landing and came in on this little private um, plane and as we come in, there was not one human in the whole of the airport about the size of Atlanta, probably not as big as Atlanta, but a huge airport. Not a human moving. Just a few guards around with the guns. And we look up and you come in and you have two terminals, huge terminals. Babylon and Assyria. Babylon and Assyria. Those are the two wicked nations that took over the people of Israel. That's how they revel in this idea even today. Babylon. Babylon. It stands for something. The book of Revelation, Babylon, is known as the great harlot. Babylon, the one that looks so beautiful but brings demise to all who touches her. The story of Babylon, this is where it begins, right here. I'd like for you to look at uh, the first two verses we look at today. And this kind of lays a foundation for three quick little points that kind of kick off this series. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. 
Now, I like what uh, Gleason Archer, he's a great uh, Bible scholar, a teacher, he says, if you really want to understand the book of Daniel, this is what it's about. Let me quote him. He says, the principal theological emphasis in Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh, the God of Israel. At a time when it seemed to all the world that his cause was lost and that the gods of the heathen had triumphed, causing his temple to be burned to the ground, it pleased the Lord strikingly and unmistakably to display his omnipotence. The theme running through the whole book is that the fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. How many of us have found ourselves over the last two weeks and we've seen the ruling of our Supreme Court and we see the direction of our nation and where it's going and finding ourselves saying, oh, all is lost, oh my goodness, what, can you imagine how these people felt? You imagine how they felt? Oh, we're whooped, we're bit defeated, we have no chance, we're goners, we've been defeated now, literally defeated. We have no voice, at least we've got some voice, we have no voice, they would have to say. We have no rights, we're slaves, literally. It was as bad as it could get. And with that, here are the three truths. Number one, three truths that are taught in our, in our text. There are two cities in this world. Two cities in this world. Uh, the first is named Babylon and the other is Zion. And that's what you're going to see throughout. Think of Babylon and Zion. These are the same two cities, by the way, that are talked about in the city of God, which is Augustine's classic, one of the greatest theological works of all times. And what he basically does is he, he contrasts two cities, which means two societies, one, the earthly world in which we see Babylon, and the other is Zion, which is Jerusalem or the kingdom of God, and it's basically the contrast between the two. That is still alive and well today. That's the very point. Young people, you got to know this. There are two cities. There's not just one city. There's not just the city that you see at school every day. There's not just the city of the popularity contest that exists where you, where you operate and live your daily life. It's not just on the practice field. It's not just here. Let me tell you, there is another city. It's the city of Zion. And that's the whole teaching of the book of Babylon. There are two cities, always two cities, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, they're known as the earthly city. They're understood. It's just representing what's going on in every single generation. That's where the belief is that all exists, either of man, for man, to the glory of man. Everything has to do with man. You get what you get because you make what you make. You have what you have because you are what you are. Everything is about us right here. It, it's, it begins and it ends with us. And when that's your life, let me tell you, it is a dangerous world to live in. Well, the reality is, is that, no, there are two cities. And I want to say this to our young folks particularly. If we ignore or deny the contrast between these two cities. And we start living, believing there's just one city. 
or even to think there's only one city that counts. When that happens, we have bought into the lie that brings destruction. The lie is that to be a winner, you've got to be a faithful citizen to the city of earth, Babylon. You've got to think its thoughts. You have to embrace its values. You have to succumb to its morals. So before we hit point two, just a question internally to think about for all of us, not just our young people. And that is this. Are you aware that there are two cities? Does it live on your mind every moment through the day that there are two cities? And when I say every moment, not every single thought, but is it just constantly on your reality list that there are two worlds that exist? Is it just work? Is it just family? Is it just the playground? No, no, no. There are two worlds that exist. Zion is real. And it's a city that we've got to discover and got to buy into. The second truth, very quick, it goes like this. The citizens of Babylon have reason to believe that they are the winners. I mean, don't you think the people of Babylon at that moment, during this time in the 600 B.C.s, late 500 B.C.s, that they're not saying, man, oh, man, oh, man, look at us. We get everything we want. We've, We've whipped the people of God, so to speak. These people of Judah, they were easy take. We've taken their treasury, the stuff that's off limits and God's protecting, so they say. And we got it all. Look what we've done. Look at the people of of Judah, how they must have felt. They must have said, God, have you abandoned us? I, I realize we've been unfaithful people. And let me tell you, they had been unfaithful. We look at our place in America today, and I don't want to make too many parallels, but the reality is we're a people who have been, for the history past, a people that looked unto God, and we're not a people that does that anymore. And we can look at the pagan community and say what they're doing, but look at the church today. I'm more disappointed with the church than I am the world. When you see where the church is going today and what we're willing to embrace and say and believe and do because the pressures of the world and we want to relate to the world and we hope the world will love us and we hope the world will accept us and we hope the give it up. It's not going to happen. We're not trying to change the earth city into the global eternal city. There's another kingdom and we want to bless this world as much as we can but we've got to know No, there is another kingdom, and that's where our true citizenship lies. And it may appear as if we are absolutely out of existence. We never are. Do you know the book of Revelation? It says that the evil one who now is bound from deceiving the nations, from accusing us before our Father in heaven, He's bound from doing those things, but it says at the end he'll be released for a short time and it will appear as if the church has lost its existence. And were not for the grace of God, even the elect would be deceived, meaning God's people will be so confused saying, maybe maybe it's not right. Maybe, did we miss it? Were we really the right people? Were we really the people of God? Are we really? And he said, that's when, in the old historical study of Armageddon, well, that's, that was a historical battle of Armageddon when it looked like Israel was defeated, had no hope whatsoever, and then God swoops in in the last moment, and the victory is Israel's. And that's what he says is going to happen in the last day for us, which says that things have got to get a whole lot worse before they get 
to the extreme good we're looking for. It's going to happen. And we have to be prepared. But folks, if we walk through this saying, maybe our city's not so real. Maybe our city is not so important. Maybe our city is not looked after by God. Maybe I better attach to this city and get as far up the ladder as I possibly can at least, which means compromise, which means I've got to give in and I can't hold to the truth and I can't stand strong. Maybe I better give up. And that's what so many of you young people have concluded at an early stage in your youth, I've got to surrender because I've got to get up that ladder. No, when you begin to realize there's another city, there's another ladder, there's where you want to focus your attention. Then you're the real winner. That's where winning takes place. I'll tell you this, you look today at our own land, and let me tell you, the earthly city is shining. Look at the government. Look at our schools. Look at our media. Truth and the church, it's being crushed right now. I told somebody just recently, I said, I've never seen two years of any of my life where there's been such a rapid decline of the embracing of truth and the violent attack on truth. Never seen it happen so quickly. What's going to happen in the next five, ten years? Who knows? But the reality is, the reality is our third and final truth. And that is this. The Lord Jehovah is sovereign over both cities. There's the teaching of the entire book. The Lord Jehovah, king over all, sovereign over all. So what we see is in verse 2. Let's read verse 2 again. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with the vessels, some of the vessels of the house of God. And they took them off to their own land. And so now this gives the people of the, the earthly city, Babylon, gives them the idea that we're winning. We did this. And it's easy for the people of God to look and say, maybe it be the case. But the reality is that it was actually under the sovereignty of God, it was his own plan that this would happen to Judah. And we're going to see that as the text plays out. In fact, if you come to uh, chapter 4, look at verses 31 and 32. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. There's the great truth. So you know what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Fulfillment. He goes insane. He becomes this weird, I don't know, he's driven from the city. In fact, look at verse uh, 33. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Same thing happens if you look at Revelation 17. It's the same thing. Babylon, who is the beautiful royal golden robe and the, uh, the purple robe and, and all the gold and all the stuff, and all of a sudden she becomes this monstrous, hideous individual, and even the world looks at her and goes, oh my gosh, what happened to her? 
And let me tell you, that's the story of so many in this church. I loved Babylon. And then I saw her for who she was. And she had nothing to offer. Young people, I'm telling you this. You will give your soul, you'll give your body, you'll give your life for that which will destroy you. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Thought, thought he had it. No, he didn't. You know, anyone who steals the glory of God, now there's something that happens that destroys them individually. In fact, it makes us like beasts, even as Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, I probably have to apologize to the beast because I think we're far worse. Because, you know, beasts don't do what people do. I did something interesting this week. I, I just Googled. I said, I'm just going to look up and Google. So I, I, I Googled up and I Googled the words. Uh, I think it was um, uh, people who kill their own children. I'd say do it, but you don't even want to do it. it it's, it's just story after story after story. Yeah. Let me tell you, folks, it never pays off. But the good news is this, and this is our great hope. We go back to this truth. Remember this word truth, truth, truth. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Close out. I want us to read out of the book of Revelation, chapter 5. This is where we begin to learn what really is. This is John's revelation before a holy God. Then I saw in the, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God Almighty, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Pause. You know what the scrolls are? The scrolls are the decrees of God for all history, all mankind. Front and back covers every detail. Meaning if that scroll is not open, then the decrees of God, his plan, will not be executed. And the cry is somebody's got to open the scroll because if not, Babylon wins. And no one's worthy to open the scroll until we come to verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. This is our Jesus. As though it had been slain. As though it had been slain because he had been put to death, but he's alive, resurrected, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth, and he took, went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's you and me, we reign. Do you get what's being said here? It's saying, well, the decrees of God which include, okay, southern kingdom, you're going down. But guess what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? And guess what's going to happen to Israel? You're going to be brought back. And it's from you that a Savior is going to come. And this is the one who reigns eternal. And as the book of Revelation says, now he is the victorious one. He has gone to the cross. He has been raised from the dead. And now he is worthy and capable to execute the scroll meaning he can now take the decrees and execute them across the entire globe, including every leadership, every government, every individual, every part of your and my life. Young people don't ever, ever, ever believe that what's happening is out of control. No, it is not out of control. God's decrees are being executed, and the king who loves the souls of people is saying, come to me and join the city called Zion. Find the new ladder. Start walking up that ladder. Check it out. See what happens as you take a rung at a time. I'm telling you, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, all the things that you want. Let me tell you, that's where it is. Go for it. And that's the story of Daniel. God is sovereign. He's going to execute his plan. So don't buy into the losing team because they're ahead in the first quarter. No, no, no. You keep in mind, you're going to win this thing. But just be ready because you're going to be down 14 points with only two minutes to go. That's when you'll win. That's Armageddon. When you think you're beat, that's when we win. So delay gratification. And remember, it's this ladder. It's this city. It's this society. It's not the other. So I conclude, when a person is born into this world, we are born into the citizenship of earth. We are born into Babylon. We are the citizen of Babylon. When we come to faith in Jesus, we're born into a new kingdom. As John 3 says, we're born again, we're born into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And at that moment, we have citizenship. We have citizenship in the heavenly kingdom in Zion. We have citizenship, but for the citizenship, though we are actually truly loved of God and accepted by him, there are certain benefits of citizenship that are withheld until we take an examination by the leadership of this citizenship, of this city, and we take our vows to the kingdom. You follow that? We really missed it because the church used to know this. Oh, we get all the benefits now. That's what I we get the benefits because now I prayed my prayer and I did my thing. I'm now in the kingdom. And I don't care if you really are a Christian. No, you don't get the benefits. That's why you find in this church over and over what's been held through the history of the church where the table is defended to say, look, no, no, no. If you're not a member of God's church, if you've not been examined by authorities of the church, 
If you've not taken your citizen vows, you don't get some of the benefits. Oh, you'll go to heaven if a true Christian, yeah. But you know what? You shouldn't be treated as a Christian until we know you are and you can have an approval by someone that says, look, I've looked at your heart and to our best knowledge, we're not perfect, but we believe there's reason to believe you are a Christian and we heard you take your vows and we're going to assume that there was truthfulness as you took the vows. The first two vows we take, I won't read, but they're the vows of, yes, I've given my heart to Jesus. I am a follower. I put my trust in him and him alone. But these are the last three vows. I'll put them up as three vows only. Here they go like this. Do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? There's your vow if you want to be in this city. Citizenship to this city says, I have put my trust in you and this is some evidence to that end. Number two, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work? to the best of your ability. And number three, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace? You know, once those vows are taken, now you can be baptized, you can take the sacrament of the table. You're under the love and care of the church, their authority. Now you've got the home the family that God said every child needs. We're a group of orphans today. And there are many of us and young people, join your church. Join your church. Join your church. I'm asked dozens of times, how many people, how many members you got in your church? You know what I tell them every time? I don't know. I don't care. We're not looking for numbers. I don't want you to join this church so we get another number. Never told a human ever a number of this church. What I want to say is join the church for your sake. You declare yourself, I'm in the kingdom of Zion, and I'm here to stay. It's legitimate. I'm not playing games. And then you come take the table. Take the table. Take the table. Daniel, great story of an example that's not the truth of this book. It's the sovereignty of God. And he's sovereign because of a lamb who went to the cross, has risen from the grave and proven it's real. I declare what is. Keep that in mind. You'll be a winner. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you that, particularly for our young people, that some are on a ledge right now and ready to jump. Some are at a place where they're saying, my heart breaks, I can't carry on any further. God, give them great new hope of winning and to be the greatest of winners. Give them confidence in who they are in you, not who they are in this world. And for all of us here, adults as well, may we be a people who begin to realize I've been living in the wrong city if we have and to declare to you now, Lord, I come back and I want to be a part of your heavenly citizenship. Grant it, we pray, and we thank you in the great name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.